You're listening to the Seabreeze Church Podcast. Good morning, everyone. Good to see you today. We're in a series of messages where we're looking at the, the major religions that have shaped the history of our world. And there, there's no way that we can fully cover uh, any religion in 30 minutes. So as I've said in the past, if you have further questions, I encourage you to look into these things for yourself, to check out what I'm saying. Uh, there's a lot more information out there, but we're, our goal is to give you uh, a pretty accurate or completely accurate and clear summary of what these religions teach. And particularly then, we, we look at the difference between these religions and the teachings of Christ. Now, we are considering what the authoritative books of these religions say more than we are looking at what the followers of these religions do. Because if you look at what people do, it's all over the map. And you can come to some really wrong conclusions based on what people do uh, who claim these different religions. It'd be kind of like uh, evaluating the quality of Beethoven's music by listening to the performance of a really bad orchestra. You would come away with some wrong conclusions about the brilliance of Beethoven as a composer. But people do this kind of thing all the time when it comes to religion. They don't read the music, they evaluate the performances. And the reason is because, of course, it's less work to form an opinion based on a few things that people do, rather than take the time to do the research and do the reading for yourself. Now, honestly, people do this all the time uh, when it comes to the church, when it comes to the Bible. Um, maybe they were raised in a Christian home and it wasn't a good experience, or they were involved in a church and it was a, a bad experience, or they had a friend that betrayed them who claimed to be a follower of Christ, and so now they say, you know what, I don't want to have anything to do with Christ. I've experienced that religion. I don't want anything to do with Christ. But they've never really met the Christ of the Bible because they've not read the Bible all the way through. They haven't read the book, the original score. So in this series, we are not doing that. We are looking at what the founders of these religions said and did, and then what the words of the authoritative books of these religions actually say. Now, a few religions have generated the kinds of conversations and debates that are currently surrounding Islam, the religion that we are looking at today. Our last three wars as a nation were conducted in the Muslim part of our world. There was the war to liberate Kuwait, then there was the war to remove Saddam Hussein from power in Iraq, and then most recently, the war against the Taliban in Afghanistan. Now, the vast majority of the Muslim world condemned Iraq's invasion of Kuwait, and they also condemned the terrorist attacks against us on 9-11. In fact, most of the two billion people in the world who claim to follow the Muslim faith they would prefer peace to war. They're, they're like us in that respect. And most Muslims living in this particular country that identify as Muslims are actually what are referred to as nominal believers. The word nominal means existing in name only. They, they adhere to some of the holidays, some of the events, uh, a few of the practices, but they're not actively practicing, say, the five pillars of Islam. They're not going to the mosque most Fridays. Uh, for them, the Muslim faith is, is kind of an add-on feature, or it's a part, but it's not really at the center of their life. And in that respect, honestly, a lot of Muslims in this country are like a lot of Christians in this country. They're nominal Christians, you know, Christians in name only. It's not really affecting what they do or changing their lives in any respect. 
But again, we're not looking at what the believers do or don't do to understand these religions. So to understand Islam, we need to go back to the beginning, to the founder of Islam. Muhammad was the founder of Islam. He was born in Mecca in 570 A.D. And at the age of 40, he saw a vision at night during the month of Ramadan from a spirit claiming to be the angel Gabriel. This turned out to be the first of 114 such encounters, visions from this spirit, over the next about 20 years or so in his life. Now, at first, Muhammad didn't believe that these visions were from God. He actually told his wife that he thought he had been demon-possessed. But his wife convinced him that these visions were of divine origin, and over time, Muhammad began to claim that these visions were actually the supreme words from God. Now, the 114 visions, their revelations are recorded in the Quran. The Quran is, was written by Muhammad, recorded by Muhammad in two different locations, in Mecca and Medina, both in what is now Saudi Arabia. In Mecca, Muhammad encountered strong resistance as he began to share these visions, these revelations. He, he got a lot of resistance from the Christians living in Mecca and from the Jews living in Mecca. So in 622, he traveled from Mecca to Medina because that city had pledged to follow his teachings to uh, convert to Islam. And it was there in Medina that Muhammad really built his power base. It's there where his wealth began to grow, his political influence, and his military power began to grow. So over the next eight years, uh, to build this power base and really finance it, he led raids on the caravans that were coming from Mecca, and that allowed him to grow a lot of wealth and power. And then in 630 A.D., he returned to Mecca with an army of 10,000. And the army was so big that the city of Mecca surrendered and converted to Islam without a fight. And then just two years after that, on June 8th of 632, Muhammad died a sudden death. And after the death of Muhammad, Muslims faced a crisis of leadership that led to the division of Islam into two major groups. Now, we've heard these terms thrown around a lot, Sunnis and Shiites. And it was because there was a debate as to who should be the next leader of the Muslim faith after his death. The Sunnis believed that Muhammad's successor should be elected. The Shiites believed that Muhammad's successor should be from his bloodline, from a, a direct bloodline descendant of Muhammad. Now, Sunnis are by far the largest branch in terms of population. About a, of the 2 billion Muslims in the world, about 1.5 billion are Sunnis. About 250 million are Shiites. And then from there, there's some splinter groups. Uh, probably the largest um, group under these two main groups are called Sufis. Sufism is kind of the third branch of Islam. It's more of a, a mystical um, application of the teachings of Muhammad. So that's kind of a brief history of, of how this religion came to be. Now, for these religions that we're looking at, we're, we're addressing... Uh, the common questions that every religion answers, tries to answer. Common to all religions is the question, what is the problem? Clearly something is wrong with us, and clearly something is wrong with our world. And religion seeks to answer those questions to provide a view of the world, an entire worldview that answers and addresses these big questions. Now, when it comes to Islam, 
The question, what is the problem, is answered by one word, and that is willfulness. Willfulness. Now, if you're the parent of a young child, you may think, well, that's, that's definitely the problem. Willfulness. And they have a point. Islam says that the big issue behind all the problems with us is, is this willfulness. And by extension, that's the problem with our world. The problem is that we keep refusing to accept what happens to us. We keep exerting our will against the people and the circumstances that oppose us. The idea is that we think we're in charge and that our will should rule. It should be in charge. But it's not our will that rules, Muslims teach. It's the will of Allah that rules. So if we would just accept this truth, stop fighting, stop being so stubborn about what we want, then we would be, first of all, at peace with our situation, and then our world could be at peace. We could stop this striving, this willfulness. Now, honestly, this is kind of similar to what the Bible teaches about God. The Bible makes it very clear that God is sovereign, and He, he does rule. It is His will that shapes what happens, not our will. We have influence, but we are not in charge. God is in charge. But for the Muslim, this is not just one of the many attributes of their God, of Allah. This is at the very core of what it means to be a Muslim. And it shapes what a Muslim does and how they view the world. In fact, this is so central, this is what the word Muslim actually means. This is what the word means. It means to live according to Allah's will. That's what the word means. The word Islam means literally submission to God. You probably have heard, often heard the phrase, uh, inshallah, that's often repeated even by people that don't really know what it means, but this is what it means. It means Allah wills it. This is at the very center of the Muslim faith. Now, we are called Christians. Why? Because Christ is the center of our faith. He is the most important part of what it means to be a Christian. But... Muslims are not called Mohammedans. I mean, every once in a while you will hear that term, but not very common. They are not, they don't take the name of their founder. Now, he is important. There's no denying his importance to the Muslim faith, but they are called Muslims, not Mohammedans, because accepting the will of Allah is the central tenet of their faith, of their understanding of God and what's, what needs to be done in this world. So the problem is willfulness. What's the answer? We've already kind of alluded to it. The answer then is submission. Submission to the will of Allah. That's the answer to what is wrong with us and by extension what is wrong with our world. In the Quran, this is Surah 2, 128, it records a prayer that was claimed to be prayed by Abraham in the city of Mecca. And here's what it says in the Quran. O Lord, make us submissive. The word literally is Muslims. Make us Muslims, but in English, submissive to you. And make out of our descendants a community that submits, that Islams, that's the word there, that Islams itself to you. And show us the ways of your worship and turn to us in mercy. So I show you this from the Quran because this is the core of the Muslim faith. The willfulness 
meets the submission to the will of Allah. So if you want to be a Muslim, your top concern is to submit to the will of God. So therefore, your top question is, what does God want me to do? That's very similar. If you want to follow Jesus Christ, that's probably your top question. It should be. And so like with Christians, there is a book that contains God's will, what he wants for us, and invites us to submit to his will. Now for us, that book is the Bible. For Muslims, it is the Quran. This is my copy of the Quran. I got this decades ago when I was doing my original research on this so that I could read through the Quran for myself. Now, if you read through the Quran, it doesn't take you very long to realize it's very different than the Bible. Now, there are some similarities. There are similar characters in the Quran and in the Bible. In the Quran, you'll find Jesus mentioned many times. You'll find Abraham mentioned many times, just like you do in the Bible. What is different about the Quran is it's not in any chronological order. There isn't a, a story that's being told. It's really kind of like some of the poetic books in the Old Testament portion of the Bible, where there, there are statements, little poems, little, little ideas, but, but there's no overarching story that's being told. Now, in addition to that, it's for the most part, I would say, from my experience, the Quran, it's, it's really hard for you to read it and then apply it to your life. Now, there are parts of the Bible that are like that, too, to be honest. You can read parts of the Bible and think, Man, I, don't, I, don't, I don't get it. What's it saying here? In my experience, it's as you study and as you look into that, that it becomes more clear and application begins to flow from that. As I read through the Quran, and again, I challenge you to do this for yourself if you'd like to check it out. But as you read through the Quran, even as you study, you're still left with contradictory statements and ideas where you're like, I'm really not sure how to apply that. I don't know what to do with this. In fact, a few years ago, a friend of mine bought a copy because, like me, years ago, he, he was curious. He wanted to read it. He heard so much about it. And after two weeks, he said, I just can't do it. I, I just can't make my way through it. There, there's no story. There, there's no plot. There's no themes that tie it all together. So I'm saying this because if you read the Quran, you would not know how to practice your faith as a Muslim. The statements are contradictory. They're hard to understand. This is why Muslims have a second source of authority. And those are the written record of what Muhammad did and taught. It's kind of like our Gospels of Jesus, what Jesus did, what he taught. And these writings are called the Hadith Collections. They were written about 150 years after Muhammad died. There are 500,000 of these Hadith collections. That's a lot. So to kind of make it more doable, there are six of the collections that are considered to be most authoritative. And these Hadith collections, they form the second authority, source of authority for Islam after the Quran. Now, when it comes to the Hadith collections and the Quran, you have to understand most um, Muslim, Muslims do not read them. Now, it's not because they're nominal, like so many are. It's not because of a lack of commitment. It's because both are in ancient Arabic, the language of God. In fact, this is not an approved translation because there is no approved translation. Uh, in this, in my copy, it's got English, and then next to it is the ancient Arabic. That's what 
Muhammad said, this vision of the angel told him, and it was in that language, and that is the only language that God speaks. So to translate these words is to blaspheme God. So that, that's why most Muslims don't read these words, because they know Arabic, but they don't know ancient Arabic. What Muslims do, for the most part, is they learn to recite these words in ancient Arabic without understanding really what they're saying. I saw this with my own eyes in a mosque in northern Ghana in Africa years ago. There was a lineup of, I think, six or seven Ghanaian boys. They were probably 13, 14 or so. And they were reciting the Quran in ancient Arabic. And they, we asked the imam, do they know what they're saying? He said, no, they don't. They've memorized the sounds. They don't know what these words mean. And that's common. Very few ever learn and understand ancient Arabic. So how does the average Muslim know how to practice their faith? There's really two practical ways that they do this. One is the teachings of the imam at their mosque. Now, these teachings can vary, which is why the mosque that you go to is so important for your practice of faith, because you're really choosing to follow the teachings of the imam at that mosque. The second practice is the five pillars of Islam. So you get the teachings of your imam, and then every good Muslim practices what are called the five pillars of Islam. Submission is the practice of these five pillars. So let me mention these to you because they're so important. The first pillar is to recite what's called the shahada. The word shahada means to be a witness. And so this is the shahada. You say these words, I bear witness that there is no God but Allah and that Muhammad is his prophet. You've probably heard this. This is, this is the shahada. In fact, to become a Muslim, this is all you need to do. You, you say the shahada. You declare this, and you are then at that point a Muslim. That's the first pillar. Second pillar is pray five times a day facing Mecca. Um, there are actually 17 cycles of prayer, but they're spread out over these five different time periods throughout the day. Pillar number three, you fast during the month of Ramadan. What's so important about Ramadan, as I mentioned, is that's the month in which Muhammad says he received his first vision that became the Quran. Now, the fasting that's done, you don't fast, don't have any food for the, the whole month. No, it's a daylight fast. So you fast during the daylight hours from food, from drink, from smoking, and from sex. In the evening hours, go for it. But daylight hours, you fast. Number four, you give alms to the poor, which is pretty obvious. Number five, a pilgrimage to Mecca. This is called a hajj, and it must be done once unless you are physically unable to travel and partake in this pilgrimage to Mecca. So those are the five pillars of Islam. Now, there is a sixth practice. It's not really considered part of the, the pillars, but some Muslims have added a sixth practice, and that's the one we've heard a lot about, and it's jihad, or holy war. Now, in the Quran, jihad is first and foremost a personal war that you wage against yourself in terms of your submission to the will of Allah. But it can include an actual war for the sake of the advancement of the Islamic faith. And if you die, you've probably heard this, if you die in jihad, you go straight to paradise. 
The appeal of jihad is that unlike the other, the five pillars of Islam, there's no clarity on how seriously you need to practice these in order to make it into paradise. How submitted do you have to be? How many days can you miss praying to Mecca five times a day? There's no instruction about that. And so as with most religions, there's a performance question, like where is the line? Where's the cutoff? How do I, cutoff? How do I know if I've done enough? Well, in Islam, the only way you can be assured of paradise is through a holy war. This comes from uh, part of the Quran. This is 47, uh, 4 through 6. Here's what it says. When you encounter those who disbelieve, strike at their necks. Then when you have routed them, bind them firmly. God, or had God willed, he could have defeated them himself. But he thus tests some of you by means of others. As for those who are killed in the way of God, you know, in this conflict, he will not let their deeds go to waste. He will guide them and will improve their state of mind and will admit them into paradise, which he has identified for them. So this is where the idea of the holy war, getting you kind of a straight go-to-paradise route. Now, again, the preference for the average Muslim is a peaceful submission, which is why the majority of Muslims are peaceful. But here's where it shifts. The submission to Allah is so important and it's so essential to what is wrong with this world that if necessary, force is allowed and actually called for in order to gain submission to Allah. Again, this comes not only from the Quran, but straight from the example of Muhammad. I mentioned when he returned to Mecca, they surrendered peacefully. The reason is because he had an army of 10,000 and they were no match for that. So that was peaceful. But from that time, Muhammad, from the moment really, he gained enough followers to successfully fight. Even before then, he launched battles every year of his life until he died that sudden death. It's recorded that he commissioned or personally led 86 battles, which was more than nine battles a year. Muhammad very much was a warrior of his day, advancing the teachings of Islam by the sword. So now let's take some time and talk about the difference. What is the difference between Islam and the Christian faith? Now, there are a lot of differences, obviously. I think probably the biggest difference is we disagree on who Jesus is. For us, Jesus is God in flesh. He is our Savior. He is our Lord. To the Muslim, he is one of many prophets. He's an important prophet, but he's just one of the prophets. So we disagree on the nature of who Jesus is. We also disagree on the nature of salvation. What is it that grants a person heaven or eternal life, or as the Muslims would say, paradise? For the Christian, it is the gift of God that we receive through faith in what Jesus did on our behalf. For the Muslim, it's the life of submission to Allah through the five pillars. But Again, as I said, you never know if you have submitted enough to earn paradise unless you die in a jihad. And there are other differences, but the difference I want to hone in on this morning is the notion of personal freedom. I think this is one of the most important differences between uh, the teachings of the Quran, the practice of the life of Muhammad, and the teachings of Jesus, what he said and what he did. Now, when it comes to submission, freedom and submission are clearly at odds to each other. 
what I mean by that is if you're going to submit to God or to anyone, what you have to do by definition is give up some of your freedom. You can't submit without losing some freedom. If you want to be completely free, then you don't submit to anything. So they're, they're kind of at tension. They're kind of mutually contradictory. Freedom and submission are at odds. So what Islam does, and honestly, this is what pretty much all of the other religions do, is you put submission over freedom. Because to obey God is more important than your personal freedom. And so you sacrifice your freedom to submit to God. That's why submission is so central and so important to the Muslim faith. Now, Jesus completely blew up this equation. He changed this equation. And the place I think that he did this most shockingly was an exchange between the religious, the Jewish religious leaders of his day when they came to him with a submission question. It's found in Matthew 22, 36 through 40. Here's what we read. Teacher, they said, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. So the religious leaders come to him and ask, which is the greatest commandment of the law? This is a submission question. The law has many words. And they were probably realizing that I don't, it's impossible to keep all of it, so let's make sure we're at least doing the most important one. Jesus was a recognized teacher, so they wanted to know. Jesus, in your opinion, what's the most important law? This was a debate that they would have amongst themselves all the time. So they asked Jesus this question. It was a submission question. Which law is it important that we submit our freedom to? The law demands submission. Jesus, we want to make sure we're getting this right. So this is a very religious question. Actually, this is a very Muslim question. In response, Jesus said something. Now, you've probably read this before, so it doesn't surprise you, but when Jesus said this, this had to be a, did he hear what we asked question, you know, response? This is shocking. Jesus says in response, the greatest command is to love God with everything that you are, and the second greatest command is attached to it. It's so important, I can't just give you one because this is attached to it, and that is to love people, the people that I put in your path, your neighbors. Now, that doesn't sound like a law, does it? Love isn't a law. Because you can't legislate love. You know, if, if our city passed a love your neighbor as yourself law, would that improve your neighborhood? Would neighborly love grow? Probably not. Why not? Because love is a free choice. You, you can't legislate love. You can't force people to love. But love isn't just all about freedom. Love, at its real core, is an act of submission, kind of like obeying a law. It's just done for very different reasons. Let me give you two examples from my life, two acts of recent submission for me. Act number one, I filled out my tax return. Okay, That was an act of submission. I think sounds like you guys did too. Okay. <laughs> act number two, I went to Home Depot and bought flowers for my wife and planted them in our backyard. That was an act of submission. I don't really care about flowers. I don't like digging in the backyard. But I submitted my time, 
my effort, some of our money, to do that. So in doing so, I submitted to my wife and what she wanted. What's the difference between these two acts of submission? One I have to do because it's the law. The other I want to do because I love my wife. Love is a far better ruler than the law ever could be. Why? The law describes the minimum behavior required. And that's what we do. We don't do more. You know, I don't, I don't pay a penny more than I have to do the IRS. I take every deduction. I don't cheat, but I take every deduction that I'm told I can take. Why? Because I really don't want to pay taxes. I mean, even when they ask me, you want to contribute to the presidential? I don't even know what the, no way. You don't get two more dollars. There's no way. I'm paying enough. I'm not going to do that. I don't want to do any of this. But love isn't like that, right? Love isn't looking at the minimum requirements of what it can get away with. Love wants to do more for the person that they love and not less. So here's the interesting thing. Love leads over time to more submission than the law ever could. This is what Jesus was teaching. This is why Jesus said at the end, all of the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. In other words, you can read every law that God has given up to this point in the Old Testament portion of the Bible, and if these two are on your heart, if you really want to love God, and if you really want to learn how to love people, you are going to eventually stumble onto every single law because the law is instructions about how to love God and how to love people, how to submit freely. So here's how Jesus changed the equation. This is the equation you find in the Bible. It's completely different than any other religion. First in the equation is our freedom. Not just because we're Americans, but because God created us to be free. That's that's at the core of who we are. We are free. We buck against anyone forcing us to do what we don't want to do. But the reason God created us free is so that we would, and the next line is love, so that we would love. And as we love, then we submit to the ones we love because we want to, not because we have to. So why did I buy my wife Flowers? Why didn't I buy her some cut flowers? Why did I go to Home Depot and get the flowers that are in dirt? Well, it's because of an experience early on in a marriage. I bought her some flowers, and I think I'd bought her a few times because I, don't, I was a single guy, and I'd heard that, hey, flowers kind of fix a lot of problems. So <laughs> buy flowers. So I bought flowers. And pretty early on, she told me, <laughs> you know, I really don't like cut flowers. It's like, why? She goes, you know, they wilt and die. I, I like the kind you stick in the ground and I can see for months, maybe years. So I learned. My wife doesn't like cut flowers. She prefers flowers that are planted. And I would say, honestly, it's, it's kind of a law with her. You know? Now, it's not that, you know, if you get her cut flowers, she, she's going to be nice and, and she'll put them in, in water and, and throw them away a couple days later. But it's a law that I remembered, not because it's written down in a book of Rebecca laws, but because she told me about that. And I love her, 
And what that means, fundamentally, is I want to know what makes her happy and what doesn't make her happy. That's what's on my heart. So when she told me that, because I love her, I remembered that. It's the same with God. If you really love God, then over time, you're going to read more about what he does and doesn't love, and you'll do more of that than you did before. Not because, oh, God's going to send a lightning bolt to smack me if I don't do the right thing, but because I love God with all of my heart, with all of my soul, with all of my mind. I want to figure out how to, how to love him better. But love can only grow in one environment, and that environment is freedom. Forced love is not, by definition, love. Love must be freely chosen. That's the nature of real relationships. That's why God made us free, because he wants a real relationship with us. There are relationship rules and laws, but they're done not because people have to, but because people want to. Now, the God of the Bible is the ruler. He is sovereign over all, like Allah in the Quran. But he is a God of love who wants a real relationship with us. Not because he needs us, but because he knows how much we need him. And because he loves us. He is the one who created us to be free and capable of love, the kind of submission that brings joy and not anger and conflict. So I think freedom is what makes the God of the Bible so different from Allah and the Quran. But this difference doesn't just show up in the pages of these two books, the Bible and the Quran. It actually shows up on a map of the world. Let me show you a map. This is a map put out by the Freedom House group. This is their most recent one. What they do is they rank the countries of the world for the freedoms and rights of their citizens. The color green represents free. The color yellow represents partly free. The color purple represents not free. Now, I want you to notice something interesting. For the most part, freedom flourishes in the place, places where the gospel of Jesus Christ has had a major influence on the formation of that country and almost nowhere else. Now, there are exceptions to these. And we could take time to talk about why. You'll find Jesus still influences those. But there are exceptions, but they're not many. Two years ago, uh, a team of us from Seabreeze here traveled to the Middle East to do a conference for people who were serving the needs, the vast needs in that part of the world. And um, during one of the breaks, I had a conversation with one of the men that was attending the conference that we were putting on. And he told me an amazing story about 15 men from a town about 20 miles from where he was living that had decided to follow Jesus in a part of the world where that's against the law. He said it all started with a knock on his door one night. And uh, he answered the door, and there was a man that said he had walked about 20 miles because he had heard that he could get a copy of the Bible from this man. Now, in this part of the world, that's often a trap. So he said, I don't know what you're talking about. No Bibles here. But the man returned the next day, and I think two more days, and they had more conversations, and finally, this person I was talking to decided 
didn't sound like a trap. So he gave him a copy of the Bible in his language. About two months later, this man returned with 14 other men from his town, saying that they all wanted to follow Aisa. That's Arabic for Jesus. And of course, the question was, <laughs> why? What happened? This is what happened. The Taliban had rounded up some of the women in their town and accused them of adultery. And then they had ordered the entire town to go into the local soccer stadium and watch them hang these women. And the man who had asked for the Bible had just read, like a, a few days before this happened, had just read the story in John chapter 8 about how Jesus responded to the woman accused of adultery. And if you remember that story, the religious leaders of his day had brought this woman accused of adultery to him and said that she, by law, should be stoned to death. And Jesus, if you remember, said, all right, the first one of you that is without sin, you cast the first stone. Then he started writing something in the dirt. We don't know what he wrote. My guess is it was a list of their sins. So they all, one after another, left because they were guilty of sin. Maybe the same sin. And then Jesus turns to the woman after they've all left and said, where are your accusers? And he said, she says, they've all left. And Jesus said, well, then neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. He forgave her. This Muslim had just read this story in John chapter 8. And then he and the entire town were marched into the stadium to watch these women hung for adultery. And he said, sitting in that stadium, watching those women, he hanged to himself. He said to himself, watching them hang, he said to himself, I want to follow Aisa. So he began to tell his friends. They began to read the Bible. Fifteen of them decided to follow Jesus. Now, a whole lot has changed in that particular country in the last two years. I don't know if these men are alive. What you believe about God really impacts a lot for centuries and millennia. So I wanted to wrap this up by praying for these men. So let's pray. Father, you know how awful it is in this part, that part of the world. We here in this country are living on the residue of the gospel and enjoying its freedom. They are not. So I pray that you would protect them if they're still alive, protect their families, give them courage in, face, in the face of absolutely no freedom. And Father, I pray for the Muslims of this world that they would see you for who you truly are. They would see your character, your heart, 
your love, your mercy, and your compassion. I pray that they would come to see the prophet that they honor as Jesus is more than just a prophet. They would come to know of his message of love and peace to the world. We pray this now in the name of the one we follow, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Seabreeze Church Podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, seabreezechurch.com. Thanks again for listening in, and we hope you'll join us next week for the Seabreeze Church Podcast.